0: kindergarten to second grade to be dismissed at children's church, and the third through fifth graders can go to the uh, children's choir for Easter. But the rest of you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah chapter 64, which in the Pew Bibles is on page 742. 742. Isaiah chapter 64, page 742. We come to this powerful text, which is really a prayer. Isaiah 64 is actually a prayer. And here's the prayer, Isaiah 64, verse 1. You came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. So let me uh, get something straight here. This is March, right? Because I'm looking out the windows. It doesn't look like March to me. I, I just need to vent a little, okay? I'm sick of winter. All right. I'm really sick of winter. I'm sick of snow. I'm sick of shoveling snow. I'm sick of looking out my window and thinking that I woke up in northern Wisconsin. All right. I'm sick of getting in my car with my hat and my gloves on and driving around for ten minutes waiting for it to warm up enough in my car to take my gloves off. You know, I'm sick of air hurting. All right? <laughs> air shouldn't hurt. That is just wrong. Air is not supposed to be painful. But I'm just... I'm tired of it and I've had it with this winter. I mean, really. It, it, my wife knows. I grumble about it all the time. And it's just kind of like white noise in our house now. Um, <laughs> white. I said white. I'm sick of the color white. You know, it's just maddening. You you know what enduring this winter has been like? Enduring this winter is kind of like trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ in New England. That's what it feels like. Have I totally lost it? I don't know. Have I just gone over the edge? it's, It's what it feels like to me. You know, you're a Christian here in New England. We get together on Sunday morning and there's like this spiritual warmth here. We're singing these songs about Christ and worshiping Him and we're glorifying Him and then we're you know we're embracing each other and there's this love that we have among Christians. After this service, some people will have to leave, but a lot of you'll just hang around and there's this this fellowship and warmth that it lives among God's people here. And and we hear God's word and God and we pray and, and God's presence is with us and it's so warm. And then at the end of the service we open up the doors and there's this spiritual Arctic blast that hits us as we go out there. And, and we go out into this frozen spiritual tundra that we affectionately know as New England. And, and, and it is hard to be a Christian here. I mean, let's just face it. There's a confluence of, um, I guess you call them atmospheric conditions that, that come together to create this spiritual uh, deep freeze. There's uh, secularism, which I, I think is sort of the dominant. Um, mode in in New England culture. Uh, There's uh, sort of a cultural and intellectual elitism that feeds into it. And then I I think worst of all is there's nominal Christianity. I mean, that's the funny thing. People go to church but it's very nominal. You know, it doesn't really sink into their lives. It's just something you kind of do as part of your cultural heritage. It's nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. Which, of course, is not Christianity at all. And and I think these cultural conditions come together to create sort of a, a perfect storm a a perpetual blizzard that that won't seem to lift. And and so there's this frozen landscape. So, you know, we go from here on Sunday, all charged up in our faith, and Monday morning, try to take the things that you've heard here today and learned here, and introduce them into the office tomorrow morning. Or, Or to the kid whose locker is next to you at school tomorrow. And you'll see what kind of response you get. At best, you'll get indifference. And at worst, you'll get you know, outright hostility and, and like, what is wrong with you? You know, we don't take this stuff seriously. What, what, what are you, Turning one of those freaks? And those religious, you know, fanatics? Is that what you've become? Uh, the name of Jesus, the name that's above every name, is not honored and worshipped and warmly adored around us. His name is at best part of a cultural ancient past. It, it's not in people's lives and hearts. I'm making generalizations, I know that. But, you know, test and see if these things are true yourselves. And, and so we live in this, this cultural kind of frozen waste where we try to bring Christ, and, and it's just so cold. And, and then when you're in the workplace and you actually meet another real Christian, it's like, ah, a you know you're like, let's just huddle together here. It's just so exciting when you meet another Christian someplace. And maybe that's why Isaiah 64, when I was studying this passage, I, this passage just jumped out at me. This is the cry of New England Christians. Verse six, chapter 64, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Lord, come down. This is a a desperate prayer issued in desperate times. This is a plea for God to rip through the heavens and to come down and to do something in supernatural power, to intervene in a situation that is beyond our ability to fix. Lord, it's so pervasive, it's so massive. The only thing that's going to help is if you come crashing through the wall, if you come smashing through the the plate glass window like a superhero, and rescue and save, and cause the nations to tremble, and cause the world to see that you are the one true God. Lord, you have to do it because we're not going to be able to do it. We can't market you, Jesus. We can't do it in our own human strength. God, there has to be a supernatural intervention from you. Rend the heavens and come down. It's a desperate prayer in desperate times. But before we, we think about the application to our context, which you know, we, we always, I always want to jump straight to, I, we have to stop first to remember uh, why Isaiah wrote this prayer. In other words, and this is sort of the key principle of biblical interpretation, what was the historic context? What, why did Isaiah pray this prayer? What was going on that was so bad in his day that he prays this this wild prayer for God's intervention. And then once we understand that, I think that'll help us come back to our day. So, what was it? What was Isaiah? Why was he praying this prayer? And as I look at chapter 64, I find at least two reasons that Isaiah was praying this prayer for God to supernaturally intervene and come crashing in and rescue. Uh, the first reason was because of the dire situation facing the people of Israel. They were a mess. They were a mess. It, it was a disaster. And Isaiah's looking at the people around him, at, at people of God in Israel, and he was saying, this is, this is hopeless, unless God comes down and does something. It, it was the, the mess they were in. It was a political and national mess. Uh, Isaiah was looking down the timeline. Isaiah prophesied from about 740 to maybe 700 B.C., somewhere in that range. And then uh, about 100 years after that, the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And as a prophet, uh, Isaiah, along with a lot of other prophets, had been telling the people, this is going to happen. If you don't turn away from your sins, God is going to destroy Jerusalem with, with foreign powers who have, turned out to be the Babylonians. And, and so Isaiah can kind of, he's like a guy on a hill who, who can see what's going to happen down below. And he sees that these events are going to come together. In, in fact, you see that in, if you look at chapter 63. Verse 18. He says, For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. Or look at chapter 64, verse 10 and 11. He says, Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. So Isaiah is looking ahead and speaking as if it's a past event, sort of this, this prophetic uh, past tense, where he talks about future things as in the past tense as if they've already happened, in order to communicate the certainty that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so he looks at the political national situation, he's like, Oh, this is really bad. Lord, you've got to come down and save. But it wasn't just the political, national situation. More importantly, Israel was in a spiritual crisis. They were in a spiritual deep freeze. There was a a frozenness spiritually and morally. And you really pick that up in chapter 64, verses 6 and 7. It says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. people were so far from God. There was such such a a turning away from God. There was such hostility to the things of God. It was like everybody was unclean. Isaiah looks around and he says, we've all turned away from God. We're all so unclean. And it's so bad that even our best deeds are like filthy rags. That's how bad it has become. Even my best efforts at trying to be decent or trying to be... You know, a, a good follower of God and trying to be nice, you know, whatever the Israelites did to, to make themselves look good. God says, you know, this is like filthy rags to me. That's how tainted everything is. The end of verse 6. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The, the people had dried up and there was no spiritual life. They're like, you know, like the beech trees around here, keep their leaves all winter. And you like, say, oh, look, there's a tree with leaves on it. And you go up and it's just this dry little, these leaves that just won't fall off the beech trees. And, and th- that's the picture. Is, is they, they look like a healthy nation, but when you come up and look at them closely, there's no spiritual life. It's, it's dry and it's dead. Verse 7, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. The people around him were striving, but they weren't striving for God. They strove for houses and they strove hard for wealth and prosperity and they strove hard for advancement in their, in their farming and I guess we'd equate, equate that to their careers. You know, they, they were all about all the things of the world, but nobody was working hard for God. They, they weren't living out that song we sang right before the sermon, I'm desperate for you. I can't live without you. There, there wasn't that spirit among them that oh, we have to have God or we're going to die. It, it was just this well, you know, it's fine. we got that taken care of. We go to temple, whatever, once a week and you know, we're, we're all set. No, no, no. Are you desperate for God? Are you searching for Him? And Isaiah looks around and he says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. It was a spiritual wasteland. And so, because of the political and spiritual context, Isaiah makes this desperate prayer Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But there's a second reason that Isaiah makes this prayer. Not only is it because of who the people were and where they were at, but the second reason that Isaiah prayers this prayer is not just because of who the people are, but also because of who God is. That's the other thing that motivates this prayer. And that's what makes it not a desperate, sad, miserable prayer, but it's a confident prayer. Because Isaiah is not only looking at the miserable situation of the people, he's also looking at the greatness of his God. Isaiah is not only looking at the present problems and failures of his people. He's looking at God, and particularly he's looking at God's past actions of intervention. He's saying, I know that I worship a God who can, has, does, and will again intervene. I worship a God who likes to come down and save. And because of that, because I know that's who God is, I'm going to pray again, in spite of the hopelessness around me, I'm going to pray to this God and say, God, come down again. Again. You see verse 3. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is a look into the past. Not a present prayer. It's a past. He says, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. So in the face of the present situation, Isaiah looks into the past and he says, I know that God has come down before. And I'm going to pray that he's going to come down again. Now, what is the historical situation that Isaiah is thinking of? Can, can you pick that up in verse three? I, I think there's a specific Old Testament story that Isaiah has in his mind as he's talking about God coming down. I, let me do this. I'll read it again. I'll read verses one to three, and do, we'll do sort of Bible trivia here, and, and see if you can detect what what you think the story is that Isaiah is specifically referring to. Let me just read it to you again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down; that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. What, what was the historical incident? What's that? Elijah? Yeah, Elijah is sort of a, a recap. Someone raised his hand there. What do you say, buddy? Yeah? That's right, it was that cloud, wasn't it? Nice job. It it was that cloud that came in the days of Moses when, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai. You Remember that story? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. The Israelites are all there. He's led them out of Egypt. And this huge, fiery conflagration descends upon Mount Sinai. And the mountains trembled and buckled. In fact, let's read it. Put your finger here in Isaiah 64. We're going to come back to that. And look at Exodus chapter 19 page 73. Exodus chapter 19, page 73. Here's the description of when God came down on Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments. Exodus nineteen sixteen. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke built up from it like a furnace, uh, like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain, here we go, the mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. I go back to Isaiah 64. I think that's the picture. In fact, that incident is so burned into the minds of the Israelites that generations and generations later, this image continues to come up in their writings as an image of salvation. You know, They worshipped a God who came down. Not just some God who's out there and you know, there's lots of gods. No, no. We worship a specific God who saved us in a supernatural way. We saw Him. He came down. This is our God. He's a God of power and, and greatness. So he says, going back to chapter 64, verse 4, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. The God of the Bible is unique. There's no God like him. And the way he's unique here is that he's the God who acts, who comes down, who intervenes in space-time human history to save his people. That's who he is. Now, the, the it, people around Israel, they had gods. And there's lots of gods. They were polytheistic cultures. They had more gods than you could shake a stick at. They had idols everywhere. And, and you might say, well, those gods acted. But, you know, not really. You, you know, the gods of the nations were more like personifications of the forces of nature. It's really what they were. You know, there's the sun god, and the moon god, and the rain god. So, like, when it rained, they would say, ooh, the rain god is sending rain. You know, when thunder struck, ooh, the the thunder god has sent thunder, or boy, it's hot today, the sun god must be angry at us, or whatever. And and so it, it was more like the natural phenomena deified was how the religions of the people around them worked. But that's not what the Israelites were saying. They weren't saying, hey, our god just sends the rain, although they believed he did send the rain. What they were saying is, our god has done what we would call supernatural things in the history of his people. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush that didn't burn up. That's supernatural. And God enabled Moses to, to send these plagues upon the people of Egypt. And when the, uh, the people left Egypt, like, like that, that young man said, God came down in the pillar of cloud and fire and led them. I mean, it's not a natural phenomenon. It's a supernatural divine manifestation, what we call theophany. And, and when they came to the Red Sea, it parted. And when they came to Mount Sinai, the cloud came down. And when they were out in the desert, the manna came down. And so they worshipped a God who came down. A God who intervened in human history. That was their story. Not just that, oh, we think our God sends the rain, but it was, no, no, God has done these remarkable, believe it or not, kinds of things. And that's what he did. That's how he saved us. Our God is a God who comes down and intervenes. The Bible is essentially a history book telling the story of how God has intervened in human history to save a people for Himself. You know, you look at this Bible you're like, I can't read this whole thing. Give me the cliff notes. Alright, here's the cliff notes on the Bible. You want to know what the whole message of the Bible is? The whole message of the Bible is this. It's the history of God intervening in human history supernaturally to save a people for Himself. It's a history book. It's a story. Even the parts of it that aren't technically in the genre of historical narrative are part of the history. And so that's why when people say things like, well, you know, I believe the main teachings of the Bible, I just don't believe all those stories. You can't separate them. they're, They're inextricably linked. That is the message of the Bible, is that God is part of our story. You take that out, you take the stories out, you take out the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, you take out the Red Sea, and you don't have Israel, you don't have Jesus, you don't have the story of God's love. You know, you know, people say, well, the main thing the Bible teaches is love, right? No, no, that's what Barney teaches, okay? The Bible, the, the Bible teaches Christ crucified for sinners. Yeah, God is love. Yes, it teaches love. But it's not love in some ephemeral, abstract, ethereal sense that, that's safe and comfortable and makes us all feel good. It's a specific love in the person of Jesus Christ. God's love is demonstrated in a historical action of Christ coming, dying, being buried, rising, ascending to heaven, pouring out the Holy Spirit in space-time, and coming again someday to put a period, or maybe we should say exclamation point at the end of human history. In this world as we know it, will end. That's the story of the Bible. Is a God who acts in human history. And so that's why Isaiah could pray so boldly, Lord, come down. Man, the Israelites, this this nation is lost. It's whacked. It's a spiritual ice cube. This place is not responding to you. But God, you've come down in the past many times. And you can come down again. And you can act. I believe it. The Lord, you can do something great. What I want to say to you is, and say to myself, is if Isaiah could pray that, how much more so should we be praying that? Because what did Isaiah have? He had the exodus, and he had God coming down on Mount Sinai. But man, we have a descent of God from heaven that blows away the exodus. We have Jesus Christ, God come down among us. And not a deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but the ultimate deliverance from our sins through His death on the cross. And so I think if Isaiah could pray this prayer confidently, O Lord, come down. We who have Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, after Jesus went to heaven, He poured out the Spirit at Pentecost, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more so should we confidently be praying, Lord, come down. Not some desperate, wimpy, schmarmy little prayer, but a confident prayer. Lord, come down. Come down again. As you have many times before in the history of New England, come down again. Because we have Christ, the greatest, ultimate, truest, purest manifestation of God, coming down. In fact, I want to look at a passage where Christ talks about His coming down. Turn to John chapter 6. It's on page 1056. page 1056 in your Q Bible, John chapter 6. And we're, we're going to read a little exchange here between Jesus and the crowds. And what I want you to be listening for, what, what I want you to sort of pick out and mentally underline, is all the places where Jesus describes himself as coming down. And see that Jesus uses this theophany language to describe his own ministry, what it was that he did. So look at John chapter 6, page 1056. We'll start at verse 28. The story is that Jesus is teaching the crowds and the crowds are going back and forth with him. So the typical thing he did everywhere. Verse 28, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? What is it that I have to do to be right with God? You're the man of God. Okay, what do I have to do? What is it that God wants from me? How do I draw close to God? Verse 29, Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30, So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now notice here again, this this biblical worldview that says that God is a God of miracles. He comes down. And they said, you know, in the past God gave us manna. Can you do something like that? What's the miracle you do? What's the divine invention that you can bring to show us that you really are the one that we should follow? And in verses 32 and 33, basically what Jesus says is, I am the miracle. <laughs> you want the miracle, it's me. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but shall raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son... And believes in him, shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Who is Jesus? That's the question. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? Uh, is he a guru? Is he a spiritual reformer? You know, who was he? And who did he say he was? That's what the whole book of John is about. Who is Jesus? One question. Who's Jesus? Whole book written to answer that question. Who is this guy? And this is what Jesus says about himself. Jesus says that he came down from heaven, that he is the bread of life, that he raises the dead, and that he's the one in whom we're supposed to believe. Now let me ask you a question. In the biblical thought world, in in the biblical worldview. Who is the one person who is in heaven and comes down? Who is the one person who gives life? Who is the one person who raises the dead? And who is the one person who can say, I'm the one you're supposed to believe in? Who is that in the Bible? It's it's God! That's the only person that is in the Bible. And so in his typical roundabout, semi-veiled way, which is how Jesus spoke on earth, because he didn't want to just give it away. He wanted people to, you know, wrestle a little bit. In in his typical circuitous way, Jesus is telling the people, I'm God. All those attributes only apply to God in the Bible. Nobody else. And so he's saying, I'm God in human flesh. Which means either Jesus was crazy, or he was a really evil liar, or he was Lord. When people say they're God, it's got to be one of those three things. And so you look at his life, you go, was this guy a, is this guy a liar? I mean, he's one of the greatest men that ever walked planet Earth. Was he, was he crazy? I, is this what a crazy person does? Or was he, perhaps, the only person who's actually backed up those claims? When Jesus walked among us, God had come down and God was walking among us. When Jesus reached out and touched people, God was touching people. When Jesus came down and, and wore this, this crown of thorns, This ugly crown. God was wearing this ugly crown. God crowned himself with thorns for our sanctification and our salvation. God came down. And I don't understand, how could God die for me? That makes no sense. I don't know. (laughs) I have no clue. But he did it. He did it. Because he can do anything. God dwelt among us to save us. And man, if that's the God I have, then how much more so? should I be confidently praying, O Lord, come down. If that's the God that I love, if that's the God who loves me, who clothed himself, not in fire and clouds and earthquakes, but a God who clothed himself in humanity to save me, that's the God who will come down for me again. So let us pray, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. And it starts with us. It starts personally. It's a, a personal prayer. In fact, let's start at the very beginning, the very basics. Have you ever had Christ come into your life? Are you really a Christian? Have you ever prayed to Jesus, Jesus, I am a sinful person. Come down into my life and forgive me and make me yours. All you have to do is believe. Remember those, those uh, people asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered in verse 29, the work of God is this. To believe. You just have to believe in Christ and receive Him as your Savior. Are you sure you sure don't have to do any like penance or like do some good deeds and you know, get myself in order? No, no, no. All your works are filthy rags anyway. God doesn't take those. Only Christ. Are you sure it's so simple? Don't have to do anything? No, no. It's been done already. Christ did it on the cross. You just have to believe. That's all it takes is to believe in Christ. And so maybe that's where you start with this passage, is just coming to that first base of salvation, saying, all right, Christ, I don't have all the answers, I still have a lot of questions, but I'm going to trust you to save me. Maybe get up tonight, two in the morning, just get out of bed and say, all right, that's it. I'm not going to wait any longer. Jesus, come into my life. And then we as Christians have to keep praying this prayer, O Lord, come down. To be a Christian is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if, if you're trying to be a Christian, and like I am, and sometimes I just keep falling on my face and stubbing my toe again and again, probably chances are I'm trying to do it in my own strength. To be a Christian, you have to have a daily empowerment from God. I, I was at the Y yesterday, and uh, I bumped into a brother there from the church, and uh, he and I put our kids in the same program, and then we went over and exercised on the treadmills. It was great. We're just exercising away in the Y, just having this conversation about Jesus, and I'm like, how'd you come to know the Lord? He told me that. He's like, no, how me how you came to know the Lord? And I told him, and we're just talking about the Lord and faith. It's a great conversation. But one of the things we got onto at the end was about how to live the Christian life, you need divine empowerment. That it's not something we just sort of gym up and do in our own strength. And so every day when I get out of bed, when I swing my feet over the side of the bed and sit there and rub my eyes for five minutes, I, I need to pray, Lord Jesus, rend the heavens, come down in my life today. Maybe make that your goal. How about from now till Easter, every morning when you get up, just pray that simple prayer, Lord Jesus, rend the heavens and come down. Because I know me. And I know unless you help me, I'm going to be me again, which I don't want to be. I want to be you. So help me to be you instead of me. Help me to live like you, Christ. We all have what the Puritans call bosom sins. Bosom sins are the sins that are near and dear to our hearts personally. And each one has a different bosom sin. So it's like, Lord, deliver me from my bosom sins. Help me not to fall into the old Jeremy. Help me to live the new life in Christ today by your strength. And then what about New England? Have we given up? This place is it's, it's resistant to the gospel. This is rocky ground. Even in my short time here, my, my nine years here in New England ministry, I've seen a lot of people. I'm charging in to start churches and charging in to start ministries and boing, they get bounced right back to, you know, Arkansas, wherever they came from. It's a hard place to minister in the name of Jesus. It's really gospel resistant. It's like a Teflon coating on it or something. There's a spiritual frozenness. And we can be so frustrated, you know. You've been praying for your dad for years. You've been praying for your son for years.
1: Oh, you get.
0: Is it ever going to happen? I've been praying for my neighborhood for months, you say. It just seems like it's hopeless. And we want to give up in despair. It's like, let's just move to Tallahassee or, you know, Orlando. It's warm and people there, it's okay to be a Christian there. You know, maybe I just want to give up. But I say, let's stay and let us wait upon the Lord. Because no one has ever seen a God like ours who... Acts for those who wait for Him. I say we stay, and instead of looking at the miserable spiritual tundra around us, we look to Jesus Christ. And we say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And that includes Massachusetts. That includes the South Shore. Jesus is the King of the South Shore. Jesus is the King of Hingham. Jesus is the King of everything. And if I really believe that, I'm not going to wimp off and be like, oh, we will never break it in New England. I'm going to stand and pray. And I don't care if it takes a day. I don't care if I have to wait on the Lord a month, or a year, or 20 years, or I don't care if I have to die praying, and 10 years after my death it finally happens. We're going to stay and pray. And we're going to ask God to come down into this area and change it by His power. We're going to say, Lord, give us, Give me my mom. Give me my spouse. Give me my child who's run away from you. Lord, give me my bosses. Give me my neighborhood. Lord, give us New England. New England. Give it to us. And we're going to pray it confidently. And we're going to stand and pray. And we're not going to be discouraged. Because we worship a God who... Acts and who intervenes supernaturally as he has time and time again in New England's past. We're going to ask him to do it again and again. Therefore, Lord, we pray, rend the heavens and come down. Hey, praise him when you come and lead us in a closing prayer, prayer song. Would you stand and let's worship together.
1: Let's worship together as we sing a song to the Lord, a song that looks back at what he's done in the Old Testament but also looks ahead at what he has in store for us. Let's worship together.
0: your hearts on fire and go out there and just burn. And uh, people love to come see someone on fire. He set a fire to a house. Everyone wants to watch it. Go out there and burn. Just burn for Jesus. People will come and watch the freak show. And, but burn for Christ and people, people will watch. People will notice. Hey, after the service our prayer team is here. And they would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life, big or small. Come downstairs after the service, get coffee. We're having a big informational meeting in Fellowship Hall to cover a whole bunch of things that are going on in the life of our church. It's just this whole bunch of things that are ramping up and changes that are coming that that, uh, we want to just kind of expose you to in sort of a shotgun sort of approach and just let you see all the different things happening in the life of the church. So come on downstairs afterwards. And now, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you set our hearts on fire. Lord, it's, it's so great to be here singing these songs, reminding ourselves, Jesus, that you are Lord. And I pray that as we go out there back into the, the world, that, that this joy we have in our hearts in Christ wouldn't fade away. It wouldn't be some merely emotional thing, but it would be a solid, unshakable faith in Christ. Help us, Lord, to believe in you, not in our context. Help us to believe in you, Jesus Christ, in your word, not what the people around us are saying. Help us to believe Jesus and to pray faithfully. And God, set us on fire so that others may come and watch and be warmed and be caught on fire themselves. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.